Yeah. Told you, that'd be good walkout music for a fight. On top of that, we got Stuart back here playing drums and singing and wearing green pants. Awesome. Hey, uh, glad, glad you guys are back. This, uh, this confession I'm about to make will probably not shock most of you, but I am not the most touchy-feely person on the planet. Uh, that's not really how I was raised. We weren't the most like huggy of households. It wasn't just me and my mom all the time. There were a couple of years where me and my mom lived with my grandparents, her parents, and, and my grandfather on her side uh, was a colonel in the Air Force. And so when I, didn't, uh, when I didn't get up in the morning with the first bell, the first alarm clock, if I stayed in bed, hit snooze, anything like that, the second thing that was going to happen to me was a cold glass of water on my head. That, that happened. Some of you are like, oh, that's why you are the way you are. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why I need, probably need counseling today. Um, but that's, I, when I like fell down and hurt myself, my parents didn't like rush to my side and brush me off and make sure I was okay and take me to the ER for every bump and bruise. That's just not how, how I was raised. And so consequently, I'm kind of old school. So for example, I I think it's an absolute travesty that our kids don't get to play legit dodgeball in school anymore. Like, like yeah, I, I had this... Um I had this moment I was taking on Fridays are usually my day off and so I try to take my kids to school on Friday mornings I taking my kids to school and I'm like hey uh, did, you got PE today they're like no we had it yesterday I'm like what'd you play and they're like we played dodgeball and I was like awesome you played dodgeball and they were both the older two were like no it's lame we have to roll the ball at each other <laughs> and and I literally like needed to pull the car over and have like a moment like to <laughs> like to to breathe right and like this is a good example, just a small example of like a thousand things that are wrong with our country. If we would just reinstitute dodgeball, a lot of things would get better, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and you guys are all as awful as me, all right? So, so consequently, that's kind of how I am with my kids. Like, again, if they fall and, and scrape their knee, I kind of let them assess the situation and figure out how to get back up because that's called life. You fall down, you have to figure out a way to get back up. Now, put all that over here and put that beside this news story that I read a while back. And then since then, I've actually read several news stories reporting the same thing, that there are some schools in our country and a few in other countries that have instituted what they call a strict no-touch policy. A meaning under no circumstances at school for the eight hours that you're there, are you allowed to physically touch another human being in any way, shape, or form? No handshakes, no high fives, no pats on the back, of course no tag, and definitely no hugging. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's absolutely stupid. All right, And all you have to do is do a little bit of research to find out that human touch is actually vital to our existence. Human contact is really, really important for our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, and even our spiritual health. You can do some research and find out it's key to stress relief and lower blood pressure and basic socialization skills, minimizing fear, and the list goes on and on and on. See, to be around people and to be near people but never touched by another person has horrible effects on us as human beings. See, this is why, even though I'm not the most touchy-feely of people, when you, if you see me around my kids, you will see me hug my kids, kiss my kids, hold their hand, they sit on my lap. We have a lot of contact in appropriate ways because that's important for their development. Kids that are raised in orphanages, especially in other countries, when they're kind of lined up on walls with cribs and babies are just left in cribs for hours upon hours all day long, those babies often are failure to thrive infants because of the lack of human touch. And the same thing happens to adult people. We fail to thrive without human touch. 
See, being isolated, numb, and unable to feel is destructive. It's destructive. And as humans, we've always had this tendency, unfortunately, to do this to one another. We've always known that if we want to be particularly cruel to any group of people, all we have to do is label them as untouchable and then isolate them. And in Jesus' day, it was no different. As we've been in this mega series for the past several months about Jesus, we've seen him continually cross paths with different people who in his culture have been labeled untouchable. And that's who we're gonna meet today, another group of untouchable people represented by one man. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Mark. We're gonna be in chapter one. We're gonna pick it up in verse 40. If you don't have your Bible, pull out your program. The scripture will be in there. It'll also, also be on the screens. And we're gonna kind of watch this interaction with Jesus and, and this man who comes up to him. Look at this, verse 40. And a leper came to him, the hymn is Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, uh, we have three different accounts of this story, one from Matthew, one from Mark, and one, one from Luke. And Luke, who was a doctor, often gives us more details, especially when it pertains to medical stuff. And so what Luke tells us is that this man was full of leprosy. The Bible actually uses the word leprosy to kind of be a junk drawer word to describe various skin diseases, but leprosy itself in both Bible times and even still in certain corners of the world today is an incredibly destructive and terrible disease. It often begins with kind of a, just a subtle numbness on the tip of your nose or your fingers or your tongue or your, your lips or, or even your ears. And then the numbness tends to spread. And what happens is the person who's contracted leprosy will inevitably get some sort of um, wound or cut or scrape on one of the numb areas, not realize what they've done and not care properly for the wound. And then the flesh gets infected. And then the flesh, because it's infected, begins to get rotten and literally begins to fall off of people's bodies. And someone in advanced stages of leprosy oftentimes will not have a nose or lips. Consequently, there's a horrible smell in their appearance is very repulsive to other people. Add to the equation that leprosy is contagious and you'll see why the Jewish people had a long-standing tradition of how to handle people who were either suspected of having leprosy or definitely had leprosy. If you go all the way back to when they were uh, leaving Egypt and slavery in Egypt and traveling together through the desert towards the promised land, if you watch the, the Bible on History Channel or whatever, it made it look like there was like three dozen people who did that. It was actually more like three and a half million people who did that. And when you have three and a half million people traveling together, living in tents in close quarters with one another, if someone contracts a communicable disease, it's a big deal. And so you need to handle it well and you need to handle it properly. And so what you can find in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, are almost entire chapters dedicated to what to do with someone who is suspected of having leprosy. And it involved uh, being examined by a priest because the priests were the closest things they had to a doctor at the time. And usually it led to quarantine for a period of 14 days and re-examination every seven days during those 14 days. And then the priest, at the end of the 14 days, don't miss this, the priest was the one one responsible for declaring you either clean, you can go back to your family, or unclean. And if the priest declared you to be unclean, that had major ramifications that dictated whether you could, number one, live with your family, uh, number two, live in your community, and number three, participate in worship by going to the tabernacle at first and then later the temple and synagogues. In other words, you're most significant relationships were all damaged by this uncleanness of leprosy. Leviticus 13.45 says this about how a person with leprosy was supposed to live. 
It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair of their head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. With our Western ears, several thousand years later, we may read into that and go, well, that's rather cruel. Actually, it's really practical. Without modern medicine, that was, that was actually a really practical way of handling the, the disease. Now, that doesn't make the impact on the person or the family any less, but it was, in fact, necessary. But over the years, this necessary isolation led to unnecessary mistreatment. And oftentimes, the unnecessary mistreatment was given out by religious people. Does that sound familiar at all? See, I've studied this the past couple of weeks, and I came across all these different rabbis and teachers who wrote about how to deal with people with leprosy. And one wrote about how his students weren't allowed to, weren't allowed to walk through a marketplace that a leper had walked through even 24 hours prior. And then there was other rabbis who wrote about how many meters a leper had to stay away from you. I even came across one, one rabbi who taught his students to do what he did, which was to carry rocks around with him so that he could throw them at people with leprosy in order to make sure that they stayed at the proper distance you see in Jesus's day you could not be more radioactive than to be a person with leprosy no one wanted to be near you people were afraid of you you were dying and isolated and alone with no one to help you which is why historic, historically people with leprosy have always formed colonies so they could live together and not have to be alone their primary relationships were fractured their family their community with God they were considered untouchable and in curable and yet this man in this story what's he do he walks right up to Jesus it says and a leper came to him it literally translates he approached Jesus he came up to Jesus even though he knew all the laws in Leviticus and he knew and you're not allowed to do that he's supposed to stand at a distance and yell unclean unclean for people to stay away but instead he walks right up to Jesus and my question is why what does he know about Jesus? Why does he have the confidence to do this? Why does he think Jesus, who is a rabbi as well, by the way, why does he think he's going to be different than all the other rabbis he's come into contact with? Why does he think Jesus is going to be different? See, I don't know if maybe he's heard about what Jesus has done and what he's like and who he hangs out with, but this man expresses an unbelievable amount of confidence in Jesus's power because he looks at Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, this is not a question of whether you're able. It's a question of whether you're willing. And a lot of us resonate with that, don't we? A lot of people struggle with whether God is able to do anything for us. A whole lot of people struggle with whether God is willing to do anything for us. And that's exactly where this man is on this day. He's going, I, I know you can. The question is, are you willing? And so let's see how Jesus responds to this man who confidently and illegally approaches him. Look at verse 41. Moved with pity... He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I love that phrase, he was moved with pity. Don't, don't deceive yourself into thinking this is just some sort of arbitrary, like he just felt sorry for the guy. The way it literally translates is he was moved to compassion. The word in the Greek actually means from the deepest level of Jesus' being, he was moved to compassion. A good friend of mine named Mike Bro taught me this a long time ago and it's just always stuck with me. He says, real compassion, compassion is when someone else's pain moves from your head to your heart to your hands. 
The way I would say that is you see it, you feel it, and you do something about it. Genuine compassion involves action. And that's exactly what's going on when Jesus sees this man who's been cut off from every significant, meaningful relationship in his life, family, friends, worship. Jesus is filled and moved to action for, because of his compassion for this man. Here's the thing, it's really interesting the way Jesus does this because we looked at this story a couple weeks ago, Jim taught on it, where Jesus wasn't even in the same town with the person that he healed. Remember this, the official son comes to, comes to Jesus, says my son is sick and dying and Jesus says he'll be fine, go. And he is. It's not even in the same town. Jesus doesn't wave a, wave a magic wand, he doesn't do a rain dance, there's no incantation, he doesn't smack the guy on the head and make him fall down, he doesn't do any of that stuff, he doesn't do any of that, but on this day, what does Jesus do? This man's kneeling in front of him and he reaches out and touches him. Again, the question is why? Why does he do that? He doesn't have to. Because in that moment, what is he trying to make clear? Not only to this man, but I think to everybody who's watching who probably when he did it all went, <gasps> because they all knew that Jesus in that moment when he touches this man, he's made himself unclean. He can't go to synagogue now. I think Jesus is saying, hey, listen, is everybody watching? Is everybody paying attention? He's why I came. He's why I came. He's who I came for. This is why I came. You may be in here today going, I'm the most radioactive person in town. I'm the person everyone's written off. You may feel like the most disqualified, untouchable person on the planet. And Jesus says, I came for you. You're why I came. I didn't come to look at you and in horror, turn away from you and run away in disgust. I didn't come to judge you. I didn't come to condemn you or punish you. I came to heal you, restore you, and redeem you. Jesus is full of compassion for you. He was so moved to compassion for you that he came to this earth. See, when Jesus sees sickness and brokenness and fractured relationships, he sees a walking illustration of why he came. Later, Jesus says it this way, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. Yeah, they're the ones who need a doctor. In other words, I came for the sick. I came for the radioactive. See, this man's leprosy was not the biggest thing on Jesus' radar, it wasn't. Because Jesus, as Jim said last week and the week before, if you've been around, uh, Jesus, he heals people, but those same people, you know what happens later to them in life? They die. I don't know if they get the same disease or if they die just as old people sleep in their bed. Either way, they're not still walking around today. So when Jesus heals a man from leprosy, when he gives this man this temporary fix, that temporary fix was supposed to point to an eternal one. And then this story takes kind of a really weird turn. Look at this, verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus is going, listen, man, things have been like a circus around me lately because everybody's coming out to me wanting a temporary fix, a temporary cure for all their problems. And because of that, I'm unable to deliver my message. And the reason I came was to deliver a message. So if you go telling everybody what I did for you, it's going to get even crazier around me. See, Jesus knows that what is seen sometimes obscures what is unseen. That's why one of his followers later wrote this, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. That means they fade. But the things that are unseen, yeah, those are eternal. See, what if everyone focuses on what they can see, which is this man being healed of leprosy, but loses sight of what they cannot see? Jesus knows that would be a tragedy of epic proportions. 
But at the same time, Jesus is concerned about this man's relationships. He wants him to go through the due process so he can be reestablished in his family and in his community. So he says, listen, go show yourself to the priest, go through the process, make the sacrifice that Moses commanded you so that you can rejoin your family and your community and worship. Let's see how this man responds. Look at, look at verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So he does exactly what Jesus told him not to do. No mention of whether he even went to the priest or not. All we know is he spread the news and disobeyed Jesus and the same thing that Jesus was afraid would happen, happened. He could no longer enter town. He had to hang out on the outskirts because people were seeking temporary cures. You see, Jesus had this message to bring and anything he did, anyone he healed was supposed to further illustrate the message, but often people couldn't see beyond his miracles to hear his message. You want to know what his message was? You want to know what Jesus' mission statement was? I think if you were to ask Jesus, what's your mission statement? He would say, I said it a long time ago in Luke 19.10. I came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. This man in this story on this day, he was lost, and we don't know if he was ever found. Wouldn't it be pretty tragic if he was cured from leprosy by Jesus but failed to become a follower of Jesus? See, if this sounds familiar, wouldn't it be tragic if he missed the most important eternal thing because he was satisfied with a less important temporary thing? That's my story. I think that's a lot of our stories. So let me ask some really hard questions today. We'll, we'll stop talking about this guy so much and now we've got to get real personal and talk about me and talk about you. I want you to think about the, the most pressing issue in your life right now. The thing that you came in here hoping not to think about that now I'm bringing up. That's the thing, all right? The thing that's keeping you up at night, the thing that's bothering you, and the thing that's weighing you down. I want you to think about that right now. Now let me ask you this. What if Jesus fixed it? What if he snapped his fingers and it went away? What if the weight got lifted? Would that totally satisfy you? Would that be enough? If you got the job, if... If she came home, if he stopped using, if your boss stopped being a jerk, if the sickness went away, if you had a baby, if the Broncos won the Super Bowl, I don't know, whatever it is. Wes Welker, that's a step, right? All right. What if he fixed it? Would that satisfy you? Let me ask the other side. What if he never fixes it this side of heaven? What if he never fixes it this side of heaven, but rather says, but I'll be with you through this and in this, and I'll help you carry this, and I'll give you the grace in this that you need? Would that satisfy you? Would that be enough? What if he offered you something better, something eternal? Or what about this? You know, one of the most... uh, destructive things about leprosy is it makes you numb and unaware of not only what's being done to you but more often what you're doing to yourself there's all kinds of stories about people with leprosy who put their hand on a stove and don't realize what they've done or actually let their foot get too close to a fire and they've singed off the bottom of their foot without even realizing it The same thing happens with our sin. Sin has a numbing effect on us. So the question is this, are you numb to a certain sin in your life or certain sins in your life? And honestly, you're not the right person to ask because you're numb to it. The right person to ask is probably sitting to your right or to your left. 
people that care about you the most. See, the fallout is all around you. You just don't feel it anymore. It's destroying you. You just don't sense it anymore. Sin has that effect on us. And by the way, sin is anytime we settle for less than what God has for us. Anytime we look at God and go, no thanks, I actually think I have a better idea. I know you said this, but I'm gonna do this. That's called sin. And if you're still not tracking with me, let me ask some even deeper, harder questions. If you don't know what it is that you're numb to, it's probably the thing you spend the most time trying to minimize. It's the thing that came to mind a few minutes ago that you went, it can't be that. That's not that big of a deal. It can't be that. I can control that. It's the thing you spend the most time trying to justify. It's the thing that right now you're going, well, Scott, you don't understand. If my job wasn't so difficult, then I wouldn't go do that. Scott, you don't understand. If my wife was a better wife, I wouldn't have to go over there. It's the thing that right now you're trying to rationalize. I was born this way. I'm predisposed to it. It's in my DNA. I can't help it. I can't control it. See, things that we did that shocked us when we did them for the first time and made us recoil and guilt and shame and fear, all those, all those types of things that we did a second time and it was just not quite as shocking and a third time, not quite as shocking and now we're on time number 5,000 and it doesn't even phase us anymore. We don't even feel it. You see, just like pain is a gift, and any good doctor will tell you that pain is a gift, you can read this book if you want called The Gift of Pain by Dr. Paul Brand. He lived in a leper colony for years and years and years helping people with leprosy in India, and he said this, if I held in my hands the power to eliminate physical pain from the world, I would not exercise it. My work with pain-deprived patients has proved to me that pain protects us from destroying ourselves. In the same paragraph, he goes on to say chronic pain is also a problem in and of itself. What he's talking about is normal pain. He says normal pain, just like putting our hand on the stove, that's a good warning to draw back and not do that again. You see, guilt and shame are supposed to function in the same way. Guilt and shame are intended to be temporary indicators of what not to do, not permanent baggage. Guilt and shame are meant to be reminders, don't do that not carrying it around over and over and over again. See, it all depends on what we allow guilt and shame to drive us to do. If we allow guilt and shame to drive us to fear, fear leads us to run and to hide, which I think is what most of our reactions are when we feel guilty or ashamed. And what we do when we're doing that is we're allowing sin to have power over us. And the reason we do that is because we're afraid God's gonna punish us. That's the way one of the writers of the New Testament put it. John, he said this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so what he's saying is simply this, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're afraid of God, you don't fully understand the love God has for you. If you're afraid that he's gonna punish you, you don't understand the punishment was already taken by Jesus on a cross on your behalf. See, as I've said before, the real test, the real test of whether you believe all this Jesus stuff or not does not involve a Bible quiz. It involves a question, and it's simply this. Where do you go when you mess up? Where do you go when you mess up? Do you run and hide? That's what most of us do because we're afraid God's gonna punish us. Or do you do what this man with leprosy did who gave us this great model because for some reason he approached Jesus in his unclean state. Because he expected something from Jesus. He saw Jesus in a certain light. And the question becomes for us, how do you see Jesus? What do you expect from Jesus? Counter to all of this man's experience with other religious people, this man expected something different from Jesus. 
See, I don't know what people have said to you. I don't know what people have done to you. And I don't know what people have called you. And I don't know what churches have said and done to you. All I know is this, expect something different from Jesus. Despite what maybe even some of his followers have done to you, expect something different from Jesus. Because if Jesus was interested in condemning you, he didn't have to come to this earth and die on a cross. He could have stayed where he was. But because he wasn't interested in condemning us, now, in Jesus, we can celebrate the same verse that Jim brought up last week in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this man suspected that Jesus was not going to throw stones at him and condemn him. This man, as untouchable as he was, walked right up to Jesus. And he's a walking demonstration of what Hebrews 4.16 is teaching when it says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what I think the most significant word is in that verse? That. I draw near so that I can receive something from God. And those two things are mercy and grace. Flip side is also true. If you don't draw near to God, you've been provided access through Jesus. But if you decide not to draw near to God through Jesus, if you run and hide because of fear, you're going to miss out on the mercy and the grace that you need. So when we mess up, when we sin, when we fall short, we as followers of Jesus, we can go to God, not a priest, not a pastor. Jesus, the New Testament teaches this over and over again. Jesus is our priest. He's our high priest. He's the gatekeeper. He's the one who gets to declare us clean. He's the one who allows us to have confidence to go to God and to pray and say, God, honestly, I screwed up. I messed up. I'm feeling really guilty. I'm feeling really ashamed. This is really heavy because of what I said and what I did and what I stole and where I went and who I went with. And the list goes on and on and on. And you know what that practice is called? It's called confession. And despite all the religious baggage it has, it simply means to say what is true to own up to your stuff, to fess up. And when you go to God directly, to God through Jesus with your confession, you know what he does not do? He does not give you a list of things to say over and over. He does not give you a list of things to do to pay him back. You know why? Because the price has already been paid by his son, Jesus. That whole thing was something men made up to take advantage of people. You know what God does? Please don't take my word for it. Look back at the verse that we just looked at. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And what do we get when we draw near to the throne of grace? Mercy and grace in our time of need. Mercy is a beautiful thing. It means we do not receive what we deserve. When we draw near to God, he doesn't give us the punishment, the isolation and the condemnation that we deserve because we flipped him the bird so many times and said, I've got this figured out. That's what sin is. But not only do we receive mercy, we find grace, which means we do receive what we do not deserve, which is a continual relationship with our creator, unbroken by sin. And that's a beautiful thing to experience. See, I think, I think a lot of us are walking around with misconceptions about how God relates to us, especially when it comes to this confession thing. And so I want to read you something that one of my favorite authors, a guy named Kevin DeYoung, wrote in a blog just a few weeks ago, and I copied and pasted it. And I want you to hear this. This is really important. Listen, some of us become Christians, followers of Jesus, and we just go on our merry way, never thinking of sin, while others fixate on our failings and suffer from despair. One person feels no conviction of sin. The other person feels no relief 
from sin. Neither of these habits should mark the Christian. The Christian should often feel conviction, confess, and be cleansed. This is important. Don't miss this. The cleansing, mind you, is not like the expunging of a guilty record before the judge. That's already been accomplished. This cleansing is more like the scraping of barnacles off the hull of a ship so it can move freely again. We need confession of sin before God, I love this, like a child needs to own up to her mistakes before mom and dad, not to earn God's love, but to rest in it and know it more fully. Let that truth sink in. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus, and if you are in him, he has pronounced you clean. So stop walking at a distance with your hand over your face, yelling unclean, unclean to everyone you see. If Jesus has pronounced you clean, you have no authority to call yourself unclean. So let me ask you this. This is the last really important question today. How do you see yourself? I hope everybody in this room either sees themselves in one of these two ways I'm about to articulate. I hope some people in this room see themselves as a sinner fallen short of the glory of God who can be restored into a right relationship with God through Jesus. I hope that you see that God has made you this unbelievable offer of grace through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus that came at great cost to him that is free to you. You can have it. Or I hope you see yourself as a new creation made clean and restored into a right relationship with God through Jesus. I hope nobody in this room today is still sitting there going, nope, not me. That might work for 99% of the people in the room, but not me. I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. I'm radioactive. I'm beyond cure. I'm beyond hope. I'm beyond redemption. Do you know what you're saying when you actually say stuff like that? You're saying way more about what you believe to be true about Jesus than what you believe to be true about yourself. And what you're actually saying is, my sin is more powerful than the creator of the universe. I don't believe that the creator of the universe is strong enough or mighty enough to do anything with my sin because my sin is so heavy and so substantial. See, you got to understand this. No one has ever shocked Jesus with their sin. I think a lot of us, we think that when Jesus sees our sin, it's like he reports back to the father like he's seen Bigfoot or something. You know, like he he goes, it was seriously the biggest, hairiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen anything like it before, Father. Come look. That's That's not how he responds. No, the reality is our worst, worst moment, the thing that just replays in your mind. You go, man, if I could rewind my life, I would just erase that because the tapes roll over and over and over again. Our worst moment of deepest sin, deepest shame, deepest regret, it's that moment when Jesus looked at the Father and went, that's why I'm going. That's why I came See, Jesus, when he came to this earth and he took the punishment for our sin, he felt our sin more deeply and significantly than you and I have ever felt our sin. You know why? Because the Bible teaches Jesus actually became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes so far as to say this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know who that was written by? A religious terrorist who murdered Christians. Can you top that? Do you think you're a bigger sinner than that? I don't even have to compare you to the Apostle Paul. I can compare you to 10 people in our church. 
It's not hard to do around here, by the way, (laughs) who've done worse things than you. I want you to notice what it says and what it doesn't say. It says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. It does not say, in our good works we might become the righteousness of God. It does not say, in our good attendance we might become the righteousness of God. It does not say, in our abilities to beat an addiction we become the righteousness of God. It doesn't even say, in our good intentions we become the righteousness of God. It says, in him, and the him is Jesus. In Jesus and only in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God, which means that when you're in him, God literally looks at us and sees his son's righteousness and our sin as paid for. In other words, Jesus's compassion was legit. It was the real kind. He saw our pain and our separation from God. He saw our pain and our pain moved from his head to his heart to literally his nail-pierced hands when he went to a cross. See, one of the things I love most about flat irons, it just kind of makes me chuckle from time to time, is the diversity of this place. Man, we got everything from, from church ladies with embroidered Bible covers to, to people who are wearing ankle locators right now. And all the church leaders are going, what's an ankle locator? (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. We've got the straight laced. We've got the pierced and the tattooed. We've got the rich and we've got the poor. We've got cops and we've got robbers. We've got Republicans and we've got Democrats. We've got young and we've got old. We've got lawyers and we've got cage fighters and everything in between. And the most often used phrase between us is this, me too. Me too. I, I've, I've fallen short. Apart from Jesus, I'm numb and broken and rotten on the inside. And me too. But we don't just say me too about our sin. We say me too about our Savior. I was once dead, but Jesus came into those dead places in my life and he's brought life and he's brought newness and he's brought joy because he is a Savior who's mighty to save. You see, when we realize that there's no room in this community to make other people untouchable, to label people and push them to the margins, to stereotype, to do any of those things, to label people as beyond hope, beyond cure, beyond redemption... When we do that and we realize that none of us are powerful enough to save ourselves, but because we have a savior who is mighty to save, man, everything changes. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the most uh, hopeless person in this room. Hundreds of people probably think I'm talking specifically about them right now. I pray for the person who when they walked in here, they were afraid the roof would fall down because they don't belong God, I pray for the person in this room who's been pushed aside and marginalized and the person who has bought into these false beliefs that their sin is heavier or too heavy for you, the creator of the universe, to handle. God, I pray that we let go of the subtle arrogance of those beliefs. God, thanks that you are mighty to save and you demonstrated it when you sent your one and only son to die on a cross and not only did he die, but he rose from the grave, defeated sin and death for us. God, for those of us who we've believed in you, followed after you, we just so often forget that you have no punishment left for us because you, you punished our sin when you punished Jesus on a cross on our behalf. God, forgive us for when we run and hide and believe things that aren't true about you. But God, let us approach your throne of grace with confidence. And we know We know we'll receive mercy and we'll find grace in our time of need. I pray that a whole bunch of people do that right right now.
God, because of all this and a million other things, you are worthy of our worship today and every day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and worship together.